I've been preaching for a long time now. I'm 35. I've been preaching since I was 17. And um, pretty much every week, multiple times a week since I was about 24. And in all those years of preaching, I've learned that the intro to a message is very, 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 very important. Uh, to be able to introduce the message in a way that grabs people's attention and brings them in to set up the message, to set up the word of God, that it's important. It's an important part of any kind of communication. I know that when I listen and somebody does something cheesy or stupid that I immediately just assume that they're cheesy and stupid and I quit listening to them. So the intro is significant. But for the life of me, I don't know how to intro today's message. I don't know how to set up the message today in a manner that's worthy of the discussion and of the conversation and of the scriptures. Because today we're talking about not just the death of a man, not just the death of a good man, not the death of a righteous man, not the death of a prophet, uh, but the death of the Son of God. I think one of the most lost uh, thought processes or concepts in Scripture, something that we just say and gloss over and look over and move on about our day, and we very rarely just stop to take in the magnitude of, of what really took place on the cross, is that Jesus was the Son of the living God. He was the Son of God. The Bible says of Jesus that he created the entire universe through Jesus. Romans says that everything that, that exists, everything that is, comes from Jesus. It's held together through Jesus, and it's all for Jesus. John 1 uh, says that, that Jesus was the Word of God, and that the Word was with God in the beginning, and the Word was God, and something that's difficult for our minds to understand. John 1.14 says that the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among men, that he was Emmanuel, that Jesus was God with us, that Jesus was not not just a prophet or a teacher or a rabbi or a preacher or a human shepherd only, but he was, he was God. He was the son of God. It says that God uh, delighted for the fullness of God to dwell within Jesus. Jesus was the son of God. Though Jesus did not uh, declare himself the son of God. Uh, the Bible says that though he was equal with God, he did not uh, see that equal being equal with God was something to, to seek after or to brag about. And so even when he humbled himself to this earth, Jesus uh, almost never said once or declared himself once to be the son of God, but he trusted his father in heaven to reveal that reality to those he wished at the time in which he wished. And God the Father went out of his way like a good father to declare that Jesus was his son. The first time that we see this, we'll want through all through the Old Testament, 300 different prophecies about Jesus, about the Savior, about the Son of God, all coming to fruition in Christ. But the first time that we see this play out uh, with just absolute distinctness is in when Jesus' baptism, when Jesus shows up, God raised up John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus Christ, to prepare the way for the Savior. And John spent six months 
preaching the kingdom of heaven and preaching that the Savior was close, the Savior was at hand, that the Messiah was coming. He was teaching the disciples that, that the Son of God was coming and that, that when Jesus showed up, the sign that he gave John the Baptist, he said that when the Holy Spirit rests upon uh, the, the man you see the Holy Spirit rest upon and remain, that's my son. And Jesus shows up and he sees the Holy Spirit descend from heaven upon Christ and he doesn't remove. And so he goes to baptize him. And in that moment, it says that the clouds parted and that God the Father spoke from heaven and said that this is my son whom I am well pleased. Another time uh, when, when, when Jesus was, uh, took the disciples, Peter, James, and John, up on the mountain of transfiguration where uh, they were up there and Jesus just transformed in this glorious, powerful state. Uh, and God spoke in that moment and again declared that Jesus was his son and that he was well pleased. God the Father loved Jesus, was proud of Jesus, and wanted this world to know that he sent his son that he didn't just send another prophet, that he didn't just send another man, that he didn't just send an angel, that he didn't just send another messenger, but that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to this earth and that God loved his son dearly. That's the message that we get from God. And all throughout uh, the, the Jesus' life, God, uh, through the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life, gave him this immense power to do these crazy miracles to, again, point to the reality of Jesus being the Son of God. He opened up blind eyes. He fed thousands with a little bit of food. He even raised the dead. All of this, God did all of this. The Father did all of this to message to the world that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God and that Jesus was the Messiah and he was the Savior. But the loudest message and the craziest message and the most direct message that God sent to history about Jesus and about the work of Jesus and the death of Jesus, he did while Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross. In Matthew 27, starting with verse 45, uh, we see this, this moment where God begins to change the atmosphere and to reveal these signs and these miracles to the world. But to really understand the context of this, we've got to understand uh, that the way that day and really that whole week played out. Uh, right up to this moment, when we pick up in verse 45, Jesus is already hanging on the cross. But seven days prior to this moment, Jesus shows up in Jerusalem. And when Jesus shows up in Jerusalem, uh, there was many disciples, hundreds if not thousands of followers of Christ uh, flocked to the city and they laid out palm branches in honor of, of the king. If you grew up in a traditional church and probably all the other churches up and down this road probably had palms laid down while people walked in this morning and we didn't do that. And I'm super sorry if that's what you expected, but... Uh, we didn't, so we're in a shopping center. We don't have palm trees hanging around. Uh, but they, they laid down these palm branches in honor of Jesus declaring him their king, and they worshiped him, and they, they screamed out Hosanna, uh, and, and they, they literally worshiped him as the Son of God and as the Messiah and as the Savior. And the religious leaders, this is what started this whole thing. These religious leaders looked at Jesus and rebuked him and told him to rebuke his followers and said, tell them to be quiet. Tell them to stop worshiping you. Tell them to be silent. And Jesus' only response, it didn't make sense then, but it will by the end of the message. Jesus' only response was, if they are silent, the rocks will cry out. 
If, if, if my people are silent and when they're silent and when they are not worshiping me, God will cause the rocks to cry out and the earth to cry out and worship me. And this begins a, a moment. They leave that moment and they decide that this is the week that they're going to kill Jesus because of this conversation. And so Jesus plays through. He spend, does many miracles. He does great teaching through the course of the seven days. He gets down uh, to the, the, the day before the Passover meal. Uh, and that's kind of where we picked up this series. Uh, this Easter series was in the Last Supper when Jesus hijacks Passover. He takes the promises of the Old Testament that God applied to Egypt and to the freedom of Israel. And he gives them to the world as freedom from sin. And he begins to, uh, to tell his disciples that he himself is going to be the Passover lamb, that he himself is going to be sacrificed, that he's going to ha be handed over to the religious leaders, that he's going to die you know, for the sins of, of the people. He institutes communion and this new act of worship, this way to remember uh, Jesus and declare his death. He then leaves the, the last supper and he starts to walk to all of it. And on the way, he's teaching all of these crazy, powerful teachings. It's, uh, there's so much that takes place in this hour to two-hour period. He gets to the Garden of Gethsemane. The weight of what he's about to go through, the weight of knowing what he's about to walk through and what he's about to experience is so heavy on him. It says that he just weeps bitterly for about three hours and prays that he's sweating blood in this moment. And the entire time, he's surrendering his will to the Father, knowing that it's the Father's will for him to be crushed for the sins of the world. And then at the end of that three-hour prayer session, Judas shows up with soldiers, and he betrays Jesus with a kiss. Uh, he's arrested there in that moment. He's taken to the Pharisees and to the Jewish religious leaders. They go through two mock trials. They condemn him for blasphemy. Then they condemn him to death. And then they bring him to Pilate, who is the Roman governor in, in the, in, over the head of that area. And Pilate, through a series of events comes to believe that Jesus is probably the son of God. God gave Pilate's wife a dream uh, and, and where she is t tore up and warns him that this is an innocent man and that something divine and diabolical is happening here in this moment. And Pilate begins to do everything in his power, almost everything in his power to let Jesus go. He sends Jesus to Herod, the king of the Jews. Uh, he wants to see Jesus do some magic tricks, but Jesus remains silent. He asks him a bunch of questions and then he sends them back on his way back, the centurions and the Roman guards, they, they, they put a robe on him and they make a crown of thorns and they shove it into his head and they begin to beat him. Uh, they take him back to Pilate. Pilate again tries to, to talk to him and tries to talk to the people and tries to free him. He even goes through the process of trying to let another prisoner go and they choose Barabbas, this murdering rebellious guy over Jesus. And it gets to the point where Pilate finally comes before the people and says, I find no fault with this man. This is an innocent man. And he symbolically washes his hands of his blood. He says, I am innocent of this innocent man's blood. And then the people of God's chosen people, they cry out to Pilate in response of this, let the blood of Jesus be on us and our children. And Pilate walks away from that moment and hands Jesus over to them. 
And then the Roman centurion and a hundred guards, they get Jesus together. They put him under guard. They, 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 they tie him to a, a post and they begin to scourge him and beat him and rip his flesh from his bones. And after a while of beating him and torturing him and humiliating him, uh, they strip him naked. They put a cross on him and they march him up to Golgotha, which is Aramaic for the place of the skull. And while they're on this place, this is where they kill and crucify criminals and rebellious people. They lay him down along with two thieves on crosses. The Roman soldiers, they get nails. They pierce both of his hands and his feet. They nail all three of them to the cross. And then they grab Jesus and they lift him up into the air and he hangs. This happens around nine o'clock in the morning. And he just starts to hang there on the cross, naked and humiliated with a crown of thorns still shoved into his head. And from about nine to 12, everybody is just, this is just a normal Saturday under the Roman rule. Just killing people was a form of entertainment. People came out to watch. Uh, this was just a normalcy. People were making fun of them. Uh, people were making fun of Jesus. People were, they were, the Romans were playing dice for his clothes. Uh, there, was just, there was just a lot of normalcy. Everything was normal. There was nothing crazy happening. But then all of a sudden at noon, right in the middle of the day in the scripture that we pick up on, everything shifts and everything changes. And God begins to speak from heaven. And the messages that God speaks from heaven while Jesus is on the cross changes history and changes eternity forever. And this is the moment while Jesus is hanging on the cross where we pick up in Matthew 27, verse 45. It says, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on his staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. So what you've got to understand is that this darkness that comes in about noon, it stays till three, that this darkness becomes so dark that it's starting to shift and change the whole atmosphere and the environment. People are starting to realize that, that this is not normal. People are starting to realize, yeah, there's two thieves, but this guy in the middle, something's different with him, that they start to wait. They start to respond to him different. It, it becomes so evident that, that something very unnormal is happening, that people begin to expect something super supernatural to take place, like maybe Elijah, an Old Testament prophet, to come back and to save Jesus somehow. They are very aware. Everyone is now very aware that something's about to happen. Something of, of, of epic proportions, of cosmic magnitude is about to happen and about to take place, and they're waiting for it. And while they're waiting for this, Jesus dies in this moment. He gives up his breath. And it says that in the moment that he died, in verse 51, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, the earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many. So I, I, I want you to understand that in this moment, 
God the Father begins to perform signs and miracles where he is, he, he is speaking a message to the world and to history and to eternity. There's five different things that he does, and they all lead up to this one moment uh, in verse 54 when it says, the centurion and those with him were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, and they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. And so I, I want us to look at this because God went out of his way in this moment to perform these miracles and to do these signs, to give this message to the earth, to give this message to those who are standing there today and to you and me uh, that, that there was something significant about this. And each one of these miracles, each one of these signs speaks a significant truth about reality. The first one is the darkness. Verse 45, it says, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So at 12 o'clock, from 12 to 3, something significant is happening. Something of cosmic proportion is taking place. Something that carries with it a magnitude that's difficult to comprehend or understand. And what we know about this, this three-hour period was while physically there was a man dying on a cross and while physically the earth was growing dark, what was happening spiritually was God the Father was allowing all of the sins of history to be poured out upon Christ in this very moment. The Old Testament prophesied that Jesus himself, that the Messiah and the Savior, while he hung on the cross, that he would literally bear our sins, that, that he who knew no sin would in this moment, that he would become sin, that what God was allowing to happen in this darkness was that he was swallowing up sin as a whole, big S sin, and he was swallowing up every sin that was committed from the moment that Eve doubted God's goodness in her heart in the garden to the moment that Cain killed Abel with a rock to the very uh, centurion and Romans that, that nailed Jesus to the cross all the way to your sins and to my sins and every sin that will ever be committed, that in this three-hour period that God the Father took all of sin, all of, of, of evil, all of wickedness, and all every act uh, of breaking his law, every act of treason and rebellion from our hearts, he took all of sin and he picked it up and he placed it upon, literally upon his son Jesus, and he crushed him with it. That during this three hours of darkness that God was signaling to eternity, signaling to heaven, signaling to the earth, signaling to all of history that in this moment I'm taking sin and I'm pouring it out upon my son. And because of the sin I'm pouring out upon him, I'm also crushing him for it. I'm pouring my wrath out on it. The Old Testament says that God was pleased to crush Jesus, crush his own son for our sins. And that it, it was so heavy and that it was so real uh, that in this moment you, you have God the Father literally turning for the first time. This is Jesus. This is the Son of God. 
And for the first time in eternity, there is going to be a separation and there's going to be a division and there's going to be, a, a, for a moment, the father is going to turn his back on the son. The, the truth is the weight of what Jesus was going through, the, 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 the stress, the pouring out, weeping and, and pouring blood out in the garden and his prayer, it was, he was less concerned about the physical torture and he was deeply concerned with something he had never known before and that was separation from God the father. And that God was signaling again to the world that the weight of sin and the fullness of sin was being placed upon Christ. And because it was being placed upon Christ, Christ was experiencing the ultimate wrath of God. And the ultimate wrath of God is eternal separation from the presence and the Father. And that this is what Jesus took upon him. And so for three hours, God poured out the fullness of all of our sins upon Christ. And Christ bore them, and Christ took them, and Christ experienced. You can hear the desperation in a son's voice as he cries out to God, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, knowing what was taking place, still messaging to the world, I am going through uh, the pain, I'm going through the torture, I'm going through the wrath, I'm taking it all upon me. And in this moment, my father has fully removed himself, fully turned away and I have all of the sin of the world and all of the wrath of God resting upon me in this moment. Right after this moment, he cries out to, uh, to the world and to history to tell us die, it is finished. And then he gives up his spirit and he dies in that moment. The darkness that God sent over the world was to assure the world that all of the sins of history had been fully poured out upon Christ and that he took on the wrath and the separation from God for us, that he bore our sins in that moment. And the moment that he died, three things took place. Each one of these things carries with it a powerful message from God the Father to every human heart who will ever live. The first was the veil being torn. It says in first, uh, verse 51, it says, at that very moment of his death, the very moment that he gave up his spirit, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, to understand the significance of this, you've got to know what that veil was and what that curtain was and what it represented in God's temple. God laid out his temple in order to teach us, symbolically to teach us parts of reality. And one of the things that God put in the temple was the holy of holies. It was the most inner room, and this room represented the deep, full presence of God. And it stayed separated from the rest of the temple and the rest of the world by a giant veil or a giant curtain that was 60 feet long and four inches thick. It was significant. And God tore it from top to bottom. And, and what this veil was there to represent was to separate the holies of holies from the world. And you could only enter into this room once a year on the Day of Atonement. And so God allowed people once a year, one man once a year for all the people of Israel, he would take a perfect lamb of God, he would take a, a, a lamb without blemish, and he would sacrifice this lamb, uh, symbolically making atonement for our sins. Atonement simply just means making things right uh, after our sins. When we commit a wrong, when we sin, when we break God's law, to make atonement is to make it right. And God said that even in the Old Testament, there's nothing that, that you can do within yourself 
itself to make atonement, uh, but it takes the sacrifice of purity, the sacrifice even of blood uh, to, to make this atonement, and God allowed this to happen. And so once a year, they would make the sacrifice, and then they could go into the holies of holies and experience the presence of God, and there would be atonement for the sins of the people for that year. And so for God in this very moment to rip the veil from top to bottom, this was God declaring to the world that there is no more need for atonement, that the fullness of, of what was needed, uh, the, the fullness of the forgiveness of sins, the sacrifice that was needed, all was taken care of by the blood of Jesus Christ. He was crying out to the world that this is not just a prophet, that this is not uh, just a teacher, this is not just a rabbi, this is not just a man dying on the cross, but that this is the pure, holy lamb of God. This is my son, and his blood is sufficient, that God poured out his wrath and crushed Jesus. And as his blood was spilt on the ground, God said all of sin, not just for a certain group of people, not just for a certain time, not just for a year, but for all of eternity, all of sin had been fully and completely atoned for and made right and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. This was God the Father crying out to the world that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the blood of his son was pure and holy and sufficient to save the entire world from sin. And so there was no more need for the curtain or for the veil because the presence of God was now open to all who would put their faith in Jesus Christ. That God was not only declaring the sufficiency of Jesus in this moment, that, that, that the, the, the purity of the God's perfect lamb, Jesus, his son, but that he was also inviting the world into his presence and inviting the world into the holies of holies and saying, I want to have a relationship with you. You've got to remember, and I'll say this through the course of the message, that we look at the cross, there's a heaviness. There's a heaviness when anybody dies, when an evil man dies, when a human dies, but there is a significant heaviness when the Son of God is dying, but you've got to understand the mentality and the emotional state of God the Father in this moment. It says that he was pleased in this moment to crush his Son, that Jesus Christ was pleased in this moment to be crushed because God the Father and Jesus the Son loved the world so much that they understood that this sacrifice had to happen. And so as God toured the veil, this was a celebration and an invitation that every single human heart could now be saved by the blood of Christ and be in a relationship with God the Father and experience the fullness of his presence and that we could approach him confidently and boldly, that we could walk in and have a relationship with him, that we could uh, be a part of his word, that we would, would live for him in this life and then when we die, live with him forever. This was God celebrating the victory that Jesus just had over sin in this very moment. If we could just comprehend that. He tore the veil. The second thing he did, it says that the earth shook and the rocks split and the tombs broke open. If you go back and you remember what Jesus said when he first walked into the city seven days earlier, almost to the very moment, that when he walked in and they were screaming Hosanna and they were worshiping him and they were calling him king and calling him savior and they were worshiping him as God, and the religious leaders uh, rebuked him and told him to rebuke them and tell them to be quiet. And he made this statement, if they're silent, the rocks will cry out. In this very moment at his death, 
God caused the whole world to shake and the rocks to split. This was God literally shaking creation. Because if you just stop and you really think about the significance of what's happening on the cross, this is Jesus Christ. This is the creator of the world. This is the son of God dying on a cross at the hands of creation. That the creator God is dying at the hands of creation in order to save creation from themselves and from sin. And that there was such a significant moment and that it was such a cosmic moment. It carried with it such a magnitude that creation itself began to cry out. If humanity stays silent, if humanity doesn't worship, if humanity chooses to reject Christ, if humanity chooses to not see him as the son of God, and if they don't lift their voices and they don't clap their hands and they don't bow down, God says, I will cause the entire cosmos to cry out and worship my son because my son will be worshiped. That it's not just a right, but it is a an opportunity to worship Christ and to celebrate Jesus. And if we, like them, remain silent, God said he will still be worshiped even if I destroy the earth in the process. The creation will cry out to the Savior that Jesus is worthy to be worshiped. He's worthy to be praised. He's worthy to be lifted up. He's worthy to be celebrated. And that if humanity and if his own people reject him and don't worship him and even kill him, God said he will still be worshiped because I'll shake the universe until he is. This was a moment again of celebration. God the Father is in a good mood. I, I can't express to you how, how uh, opposite that feels to say, but if you just look at the reality of this, this is God uh, literally working out his purpose for the universe. This is God working out his agenda. This is God working in all things for those who love them to save humanity and to save his creation and to save his world from sin. This is not a devastation. Even the earthquake is not a judgment. This is God shaking the world, that it would wake up the world and wake us up and see. The magnitude of this earthquake is what got the centurions and the Romans' attention at the end that eventually made him declare that Jesus was the Son of God. The third thing that happens, and the only other way to say this is the resurrection of the dead. I know that it sounds like zombies, but this is, this is something crazy powerful that only God can do. The first thing was darkness coming into the land. The second was the veil being torn. God declaring that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for our sins and that now there's an invitation into the family of God and into the presence of God. And then he shakes the earth, the whole world shakes and begins to worship Christ as its creator. And then the third is the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. This was God the Father again in this very moment. Jesus will be resurrected in a few days, but in this very moment, God already causes those who were dead to come back to life and to walk around. Every single person who had died and who was raised to life in that moment was walking around town, walking around history, and they were testifying to the reality of the victory of Jesus Christ over death. This was God signifying that I didn't just pour the sins out upon Jesus and, and, and the veils torn and, and sins are not just forgiveness. Sin has not just been defeated, but death has also been defeated. 
I think sometimes I'm just, I, I, I'm convinced more now than I ever have if, if we could just comprehend the victory that Jesus really had over death, it would solve so many of our problems in this life. If we could just come to terms with the reality that, that this life that we live is like a mere breath, it's like a vapor in the wind, you see it for a moment, then it's gone. It's like grass in the field here today, gone tomorrow, that this life is gonna pass by like that and that death will find all of us, some of us when we are young, some of us when we are old, some of it will be tragic, some of it will be peaceful in our sleep, but death comes to all because death is the consequence of sin. Every human being who ever lived has met death. It does not matter what it is. This is the reality of death. Death should be the most terrifying thing. Death is what makes this world and this life absolutely worthless. There's nothing you can live for, nothing you can work for, nothing you can achieve, nothing you can build up that death will not steal from you. No one will remember you two generations from now. You don't even know your own great-grandparents' first names. There's nothing that you will do that will make you live on forever. Death makes this life worthless, except that Jesus Christ on the cross conquered sin and death, and now we know that death has no power over us, and that we're living for something far greater, far more eternal, far more post-death, that, that the little things in life that bog us down and the little things that we live for and the things that we chase, they're worthless compared to eternity. If we could just comprehend that death is not the end, that, that, that there's something far greater on the other side of death, that what we're living for is the glory of that life. What we're living for is the nature of that life, that God spread the cosmos apart and split the universe open and sent his son down into this earth so that we could be forgiven for sin, so that we could be absolutely and utterly set free from the power of death so that we could live with him forever. I think it wouldn't matter as much to us, I think, what somebody says about us on Facebook or that our boss is having a bad day or, or that you might not have enough money to do this or to do that or that life, that I think if we could just comprehend death, and this is the problem with the world, is that, that nobody can argue with death. Nobody can argue with any of the things that I just said. Death makes this life worthless. There's nothing you can do to build up that death won't take away from you. But if we could just comprehend that we don't have to be afraid of death and that the little things in this life, they are just that, they are little things. And that the big things that we build up in our life, they're nothing compared to forever. If we could just understand that this life we live is this long, and that God sent his son not to save us just for the glory of this life, but for the glory of our lives forever. There's so much peace in that. If our minds could just understand it and our hearts would just believe it, it would change everything. We'd stop wasting our life. We'd stop chasing money and career and throwing our lives away. We would stop worrying about all the stuff and we would just learn to live with a peace and a joy and a power that comes from knowing the son of our God died on a cross for us, giving us victory over sin and over death. God did all of these things. There are four things that he did so that he could do the fifth thing. And the fifth thing, in my opinion, is the most powerful thing. He, he, he gave the darkness so that we could see the reality that Jesus bore the sins of the world. 
And at the moment that Jesus died, he tore the veil, declaring the blood of Jesus sufficient and inviting the world into the God, presence of God, inviting us into his family. He caused the earth to worship so that we would all know that even if we choose to be silent, Jesus will still be worshiped, that we have an opportunity to live for Christ. But even if we choose to reject Christ, he'll raise up someone else, that, that our relationship, we're not entitled to this thing, that he gives us the opportunity to live for Jesus, and he's worthy to be worshiped, and he proved it by causing the universe to worship while humanity was silent. And then he raised up the dead to prove and to show us and to celebrate the victory that the cross had over death. He did all four of those things. And it was those four things that allowed the fifth thing to happen. And the fifth thing takes place in verse 54. It says, when the centurion and all those with him, so you gotta understand a centurion was a Roman leader over a hundred men. That's what a centurion was. So more than likely, him and his hundred men were there. They were the ones guarding Jesus, uh, making fun of Jesus, putting the crown of thorns on Jesus, robing him, um, shaming him. They were the ones that were scourging him and beating him. They were the ones that nailed him to the cross. They were the ones that hung him up before the world. They were the ones that stuck a spear in his side. It was these men who killed Jesus. And the men who killed Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. The weight of this, what we have to understand is that God put Jesus up on the cross caused the darkness to overflow the land for three hours, took the sin of the world, placed it upon Jesus and crushed him, and then ripped the veil at the moment of his death to show the sufficiency of Christ, shook the earth for all the world to see and showed us victory over death with the raised bodies. And he did all of that so that it would be possible for the very men who killed Jesus to know that he was the son of God. Jesus prayed for these very same men when they began to crucify him. Jesus prayed and asked the Father to forgive them for they know not what they do because they did not know that they were killing Jesus, the Son of God. I believe that this, this if, if probably nothing greater shows God's heart in the gospel in this moment, that it pleased God to crush Jesus to save the very men who killed Jesus. That, that this in itself, the greatest miracle that has ever happened in the world is the salvation of the human spirit. That all of us, every single person in this room, every single person at home, we were all born into sin. We chose sin. We chose wickedness. We chose evil. We chose rebellion against God. The Bible says we're hostile in our mind. But I'm telling you, nobody in this room physically murdered Jesus. But even those who murdered Jesus, God revealed to them through the death of Jesus, through the messaging, through the earthquake, God revealed to them that he was truly the son of God. And I believe in that moment that God forgave them as Jesus asked. 
This is the heart of the gospel. And this is why it pleased God to crush Jesus. Because God loved you so much and he loved them so much. He loved the world so much that he wanted to be with us forever. That this is the weight and the magnitude of this man who hung on a cross, that he was truly the son of God and that he was sufficient to save us for our sins. And so I wanna, I wanna tell you two things. The first thing this morning is I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that there are people listening and people watching at home, people in this very room. You do not know Jesus as the son of God. You do not know Jesus as your Lord and savior. And I'm telling you right here, right now, today, this is the day of your salvation. God brought you in here into this moment, just like God orchestrated the cross, just like God orchestrated the darkness and the veil being torn and the earth shaking and the dead living. God orchestrated this very moment for you to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and for you to hear the truth that God loved you so much that he crushed his own son on a cross to make atonement for your sins so that you could live with him, not just now, but forever. And so if you're in this room and you feel the spirit of God in your life, you feel that feeling, this overwhelming burden, this conviction, in your heart. You may be tearing up. You may The hair on your neck may be standing up. That is not just a cold breeze. It's the Holy Spirit moving in your life. And I'm telling you, don't leave this moment till you give your life to Jesus Christ. What Christ did was sufficient. There's nothing else that needs to be done. All you have to do is give in and surrender to that belief. Put your faith in Jesus and he will save you right here, right now, today, forever. Don't miss this moment. And for the rest of us, for the love, truly for the love of God, if we could just understand the reality and the magnitude of this moment, that we would come to the realization of what our salvation cost God, that we would come to the realization that he gave up his own son, that he crushed his own son for you and me, so that not that we would waste our life chasing this world, but that we would surrender our life and live a life of worship, that we would turn our entire heart and our entire mind over to God, that no, he gave us our salvation for free, but it cost him everything. And though he asks us for nothing, he deserves everything that we have. My hope and my prayer is that the Spirit of God will open up your mind to understand the magnitude of this moment, that his church would stop wasting our lives, chasing this world, that we would humble ourselves before the throne of Jesus Christ, that we would declare that he is the son of the living God, that we would not be ashamed that he died on a cross for our sins, that we would live our life out in public with a declaration and a testimony to the greatness and the majesty and the magnitude of Jesus Christ as King forever. That our church, not just pursuit, but that the American church and the church of this world would wake up and understand that the majority of the time we're throwing our life away when God gave up his only son so that we would matter, so that we would have a hope in this life for the love of God and the goodness of God and the cross of Christ, that the American church would wake up, that we would see the magnitude magnitude of this moment, that we would see the darkness and that we would tremble, that we would see the veil torn and that we would run into the presence of God, that we would see the dead raised, that we would say the earth shake and that we would join the earth in celebrating Jesus Christ, that we would stop participating in religion and give our lives to Jesus Christ because he's worthy of every second of who we are. The American church is asleep and is bored out of its mind 
because it's forgotten that we serve the living Son of God, that He is our living and an active King, and that He moves upon this earth, that He's sovereign over the nations. And that as we watch the news play out, we're watching the Bible truth, the prophecy play out before our very eyes. We would be shocked to understand how close things are to the end. My hope and my prayer all week has been that his church would understand the weight of his glory and his honor and that we would live for Jesus, that we would live every second for Jesus. This morning, I believe there's people in this room and there's people at home. You have wasted so many years chasing everything but Jesus. Give your life to him. I'm not talking to those who aren't saved. I'm talking to the Christians. Give your life to Jesus. Return to Christ. Live for him and worship him every single day of your life. He gave up everything for you. Give your everything to him. Let's pray this morning.